Look alive. Let's open again to Galatians chapter 6. So hopefully you have a Bible. If you don't, grab one from the pew in front of you or behind you. Right, Galatians 6, and we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 10, getting to the end of this incredible letter. And, uh, but I'm going to read from the beginning of chapter 6. So, 6, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work and then then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. The one, who is taught, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will, fl- will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us another day to live and breathe and worship in the world that you created. And uh, thank you that that not only pleases you, but it satisfies us to be worshiping our Creator. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it uh, rebukes and trains and corrects us and comforts us. And uh, Father, I pray that as we study your word, that these words would richly dwell within us and that uh, they, would, um, they would make a lasting impression on our walk. And so, Father, be with us by your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so the first statement here, verse 6. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. And so we get to talk about paying pastors today. (laughs) That really is what the apostle is pointing toward here. The one who teaches the word should have his, um, his worldly means taken care of by the, those who are being taught. And so, always an awkward position for pastors to have to teach verses like this because they're, they're advocating for their salary. Now, 
it's complicated, isn't it? Because it's interesting how the Apostle Paul approached his own uh, money, right? I mean, he was very conscientiously not willing to take money from the congregations he served. And he says because he didn't want to lose his boast. And so he was a tent maker, right? And so there are a lot of people in the church today who say that pastors should, all of them should be bivocational and they should, they should be tent makers and not have their needs supplied by those who um, receive their teaching. And, um, <clears throat> and, you know, that seems really pious and good, doesn't it, right? The pastor should have to work with his hands. And, uh, and, and do what I do, and, um, and care for his own, his own means. But, but the, even, the, even though the Apostle Paul lived that way, everything he said was, you should pay your pastors. Right? So if we went to 1 Corinthians 9, you would see him saying, you're not going to pay me, you're not going to take my boast away, but the... the, the um, you know, don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing. And, and you should um, supply for the worldly uh, means of your pastor. And here again, he says the same thing, that um, the one who's taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. And so there's an exchange going on here. And the, tr- the, the meat of it is... Um, do you do you appreciate the work of your pastors, right? To the point where you're willing to give of your precious resources in order to sustain them, so that they can bring the word of God to you. In other words, do you appreciate the word of God? Do you appreciate teaching? Do you appreciate um, do you appreciate the preaching of the word? Do you appreciate the counseling that he would do where he brings the word to you? Do you appreciate the word of God? And there's usually one or two or three, and if you're in a huge church, it's 14, pastors who have been raised up in order to do this. And they receive their, their uh, money for life by that work. Now there, again, to go back to this, maybe pastors should work with their hands. And it's funny, I I was reading Calvin, I was reading Luther on these passages, and of course, they're looking at the absolutely rich Roman Catholic Church, you know? And and they're like, um, they're like, maybe we should, maybe we should tell pastors to, to, um, not make their money from the church because look at the wreckage of the, the riches of the Roman Catholic Church who have just, but the Roman Catholic Church got their money not by the, the ministry of the word. The Roman Catholic Church got their money by the selling of indulgences, right? It's just a wicked scheme, right? And it's fear-mongering, right? Scare people that their relatives are going to spend an eternity in hell or in purgatory and and use that fear to squeeze the money out of them. And then what do they use it for? These opulent structures and just gold upon gold upon gold and, and artwork and, you know, it just smacks of riches. And so 
the Roman Catholic Church during that time was not a church, it was an empire. I mean, it was power. Because they had more money than anybody else. Okay? And so, so you read Calvin and you read Luther on these passages and they, and they make mention of that, but then they come back and they say, yeah, but you should appreciate the Word and those who bring you the Word you should pay because of what the Word of God says. <laughs> now, um, <clears throat> um, compensation of pastors. That's our topic today. Here it is. Compensation of pastors. So what do I need to say on that topic? Um, I am very thankful that for the past... I've been ordained for 20 years now, and for 20 years, the, the church has sufficiently kept me free from the, the, the need of worldly goods so that my wife has not had to work, minimally. She teaches some lessons. She pulls in a couple thousand dollars a year teaching music lessons, but it, that's, for, that's for extras, you know, but the church has provided for me to be able to full-time work as a pastor. I'm so thankful for that. Um, I'm still waiting for the parking spot with my name on it and the Cadillac, but it's a joke. But you do have to talk about what, what is sufficient compensation for pastors, and, and that is the work that the elders do, and then the budget is brought before the, the congregation, and the congregation can inquire into the budget that the elders put forward and, and call the elders to reassess the the pastor's uh, salary. It's open, you know. Um, none of the rest of you have your salaries published. Mine are published every year in a congregational meeting. So you, you know what I make. You know what we're being supplied by the church. It's, it's out in the open. It would be interesting to publish everybody's income, wouldn't it? People would go crazy. It would be... It, but it would just be so mind-boggling. It would just immediately cause us all to, like, divide. It would be terrible, right? I'm not advocating for it. It is good that my salary, because I live off the tithes and offerings that you make to God, I live off of that. It's good that it's published and that you know it and that you can object to it um, because it's too low. Or that it's too high. Or that it's, it's insufficient to uh, support a family of eight. Or that it's over-supplying the needs of a family of eight. You can do that. Um, <clears throat> but what the Apostle Paul here is getting at is generally we will put our money into things that we very much appreciate that we really, really need and see the importance of. That's where we put our money, right? And so if, if sowing to your flesh is what's important to you, guess where your money will go? You won't tithe, right? You'll buy the boat. You'll buy the boat, but you won't tithe. You'll, you'll, pay, for, you'll pay for the Maserati, but you won't pay for the preaching of the Word of God. And I hate to say it that way, because that seems mercantile, but you won't honor God with your tithe. It's a better way to put it. 
right? Um, and so you just, you find out what you value by where your money goes. I mean, that's fundamental, that's fundamental economics, I think. <laughs> you know, find out what somebody values by where they put their money, what they have saved for, what, um, what they have gone in debt for. And, um, and so he, he's saying, look, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. You, you are not bringing the word to be taught, but you have different wealth. And you have a wealth, and all those good things, they're good things, should be shared with the one who teaches. Now here's the, when, when we call pastors in the Presbyterian church, they receive a call, right? And all of you have probably heard these calls, but you just, it's a bunch of archaic words and it blows by you. But notice what it says. It says, the so-and-so church being on sufficient grounds, well satisfied of the ministerial qualifications of you, in the pastor's name, and having good hopes from our knowledge of your labors that your ministrations in the gospel will be profitable to our spiritual interests do earnestly call you to undertake the pastoral office in this congregation, promising you in the discharge of your duty all proper support, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord, that you may be free from worldly cares and avocations. We hereby promise and oblige ourselves to pay you the sum of whatever they decide, a year in regular payments and other benefits such as housing allowance, retirement insurance, vacations, moving expenses, etc., during the time of your being and continuing the regular pastor of this church. And so, do you see, I mean, that this verse is like built into that. It's like, um, we see that your labors are going to profit us spiritually. And so we promise you, because you're going to profit us spiritually, we promise you to take away your need to look elsewhere for worldly goods and avocation and work. And we'll give you this money to do that. And the pastor agrees to it. And the congregation agrees to it. And then the presbytery reviews it. And the presbytery could come back and say, you guys are paying this man way too much money. What do you think you are? A country club? Um, or they could come back and say, you know, two days of vacation a year, kind of low. You might want to move that up to six weeks or so. I agree. <clears throat> I mean, all of that depends on whether you're the senior pastor, assistant, associate, how much experience. All of those things factor into this. But the, the heart of what's being said here is um, it is biblically legitimate to cover the living expenses of your pastor and his family so that he can be free to give himself to the study of the word and bring the word to bear and feed you spiritually. You feed him materially, he feeds you spiritually. Okay. Um, <clears throat> any questions or thoughts or objections or who wants to get into the details? Sure.
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, at, at, in Calvary Presbyterian, the PCA, a man's call, and this gets a little hairy because you want sessions and local congregations to make these determinations. And when the presbytery gets involved in review, it can get kind of gnarly. I would rather defer to the session, the local session, and not have the presbytery dictating to the church because it's all agreed upon. So an agreed upon call came for, for this guy who was being called as an assistant pastor. He was given like one week of vacation and his salary was low in the grand scheme of things. But, but he testified on the floor of Presbytery that it would meet his family's needs and that one week of vacation was sufficient. But the Presbytery still said, no, come back and you need to add more vacation, you need to add more money to his call. And, and, and I, I stood up and, of course, like I did every time I stood up, made, made a, um, a donkey of myself um, and just said, look, if they've agreed on it and if this is what the session and the church can afford and they've thought through that, I think we should just leave it alone. Show deference to the decision that's already been made. Um, but the, the pastors wouldn't let it go, and so that's why people think of pa- the presbyteries as the, the union stop of pastors, right? <clears throat> and negotiating. But, but they do have a legitimate review of that action. Every call is approved and enacted by the presbytery right? You guys didn't ordain me. The presbytery installed and ordained me. And so they have a legitimate interest in this, and they can do that. I just say, let's show deference to all the work that's been done between the session and the pastor when it comes to um, what will meet those needs. But it, you know, um, if we have significant changes in our call year by year, we have to tell the presbytery. Right? If, if we have a 15% increase in our salary one year, we should inform the presbytery. Small um, cost of living increases, we don't, we don't mess with that. But, but any significant changes of the terms of call is the interest of the presbytery, and they look through these things. And so um, one, one other thought on this before I get, get past this awkwardness. Um, and honestly, I, I don't feel awkward about it because I'm completely thankful for your generosity to my family. I am not discontent at all with how I've been provided for. You've done amazingly well. So, I mean, I'm, that's why it, I'd be a little more brittle if I was discontent. So I can joke about it. But um, I'm very, very well taken care of, as is my family. I'm very thankful for um, you guys obeying God in this, in this verse. But there, again, to go back to those pastors who say, I don't want to be paid by the congregation. I want to have a vocation outside of the church. It's, it's a double-edged sword, and it's not all positive. When a pastor determines he's taking a salary from elsewhere, it changes the way he ministers to his congregation, okay? 
And I'm not saying that when I get in the pulpit, I'm thinking about the fact that you guys pay my salary. But when I get in the pulpit, there are times when I'm thinking about the fact that you guys pay my salary. And it's good for me. It's good for me to contemplate that. What just came in this passage before our passage? You who are spiritual, restore those who are in sin in the spirit of gentleness. Right? And knowing, knowing that my livelihood doesn't depend on how I treat the congregation, if I were bivocational, if I were getting my money from a, a manufacturer of transformers or something like that, if, if, if that were the case, then it just, there's, no, there's nothing inhibiting me. There's nothing stopping me to think about how am, I, how am I caring for those who are actually caring for me. And shouldn't that factor into the gentleness and the approach and the kindness and the commitment that I have to them? It makes you more committed to the people of the church when they are giving of themselves to you even as you give to them. And so that... that um, an apostle can make that call. The apostle Paul had reasons to make that call. It may have had to do with the complexity of him fitting into every situation. Here's a, 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 a Jew, a Roman citizen, you know. It's really hard for him to, to uh, and they didn't trust him at first, and he sort of came in afterwards, and is he's just doing this for money, and he wanted to make sure that everybody knew this was not about money, this was about the gospel, and I'm trustworthy, and this is part of my trustworthiness. But all the mystery surrounding the Apostle Paul's conversion may have led him to do that. Same sort of thing, he makes the decision to, you know, circumcise Timothy. He's, he's seems contrary to his theology, right? But he makes that decision because he wants to be able to minister to the people. But the apostle can do that. But when pastors find their, their source of income from outside the church, I just get scared that they become, that all they have is the pulpit ministry. And they can... They can do whatever they want because there's no threat of the congregation, you know, the congregation disciplining him even with their money. And, and so what, what people see as pious, I think, can be seen in a very different way. Um, a man who wants to protect himself and insulate himself from the congregation will want to have his source of income somewhere else, Right? Does that make sense? Does that make sense? So I think there's a grave danger, actually, in pastors being tent makers and trying to pastor, and especially those who are principled about it, okay? So there is something wonderful, and it's a fulfillment of this passage about those teaching and administering spiritual blessings being given material blessings by those they teach to. So that's all I have to say about that. Any thoughts or questions? Yeah. Visiting pastors or like pulpit supply, they come in and preach, or like interim pastors, or what do you mean? 
Yeah, they're, they're generally paid an honorarium. If we have somebody else in our pulpit here, they are paid to, to do their work. And we assume that they've spent 10, 15 hours of work preparing to preach, right? So there's an honorarium that it's part of our budget that anybody who comes in and guest preach, preaches or speaks at a conference would get an honorarium. I think we give $200 for a Sunday sermon, which is not a lot. But, you know, object to it and have your session, reassess and tell us how much you want us to do. I mean, that's the sort of thing where you, this is why we ha- present the budget to the uh, congregation and, uh, and you can ask questions and make suggestions. So we don't line, we, we're not congregational, so we don't line by line have the congregation approve every part of the budget. The session does that work. But you, you can come in and object to things and we'll reassess. So, um, but 200 is what, what we typically have done for that. If it's a, if it's a conference, and, and they're speaking more than one time, it's usually higher than that. Yeah. Knowing that you said that how we were to give back to you monetarily, how can this get passed by going to the tax Yeah, bring gifts to the, the men and women who teach your children in Sunday school. Share with them. Get those who watch children in nursery, you know, buy them a sandwich, something. Give them a, give them a gift card to Coles, something. But just, it's that sort of, you've spiritually benefited me, now here's some material benefit to you. We should always, and there are a lot of contexts in the church where we can be doing that beyond just the main drainer of the tithes and offerings and the pastor, right? But we should be generous toward one another in those ways. Let me, um, <clears throat> let me, let me shift this in a different direction and away from money. Um, to say that uh, what I think of when I think of this verse, the one who teaches the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. In the act of teaching the word, there are some in the congregation who are always building me up while I preach. And it's invaluable to me. There are people who nod and look me in the eyes and make faces at me and give me feedback while I preach. And it's so helpful to me, right? And so, sometimes it's annoying and I have to figure out why, right? But that, even that part of it is, is making the preaching that much more relevant and alive and, and contemporary, okay? 
Now you're all on the spot for the, the Sunday, you know, for our sermon this morning. I'm going to expect everybody nodding nose and like putting their fingers in the air. And <laughs> no, but seriously, feedback, it, it, saying an amen, verbalizing an amen. Yes, this is a Presbyterian church, but verbalizing praise, so helpful to me. You have no idea the battle that goes on up in the pulpit in my own mind and in my spirit. It's a battle, right? And so when I hear an amen, well, not all of them. Sometimes people amen at the wrong point. You can do a wrong amen, and then I'll be like, and I have to talk to him afterwards. Um, but, but just, you know, facial expressions... Um, eye contact, being, giving me something. So helpful, right? For the same reason that we are called to exhort one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, to hear you guys sing loudly in the hymn before I get up in the pulpit is incredible. That's riches to me. I mean, that's so, such a blessing, right? Raising your voices. Um, is, is so helpful to me. And so I wanted to give that application of this, that it, this, this isn't all monetary and worldly goods and, and that, but there's a feedback you can give to those who are preaching. And, and um, the, yeah, that, that's just critically important, critically helpful to me. Um, <clears throat> And sometimes I won't see it, and you'll be nodding your head away, and you know you have to be seated in the right, right section or something. But don't fall asleep, please. Whatever you do, there's nothing more discouraging than when people fall asleep and yawn. Yawning. Yawning will kill. I I probably almost got fired for saying something about people yawning about six or seven years ago. It was probably one of the low points of my pastorate here. I was not gentle at all. I was extremely frustrated. But everybody in the church that morning was yawning. And it was killing me. I was like, why have I labored to work on this sermon and everybody's asleep? And then what you have to realize as a, as a preacher is the reason people are yawning is because you are boring, preacher. And you have to own it. Because that's probably the case more times than not, right? You may be sleepy, I get that. You may be unprepared, I get that. But if you're preaching and the Spirit's at work and you're doing your due diligence and you are there, present, people won't yawn, you know? So I have to work harder at that. But that day I just blamed all of you. <clears throat> for my insufficiency. Um, so, you know, apply this passage to that. Think about that. How, what sort of feedback um, yeah. Jeremy Pierce and I were recording a um, podcast and uh, he's the one who, who brought that to my attention, just feedback during sermons. And he's, he's one of the he, he gives me feedback. He's with me. I can tell he's listening. He's with me. 
He's nodding. He's, he, said, he said in the last sermon he wanted to say amen. And I was like, why in the world would you not do that? Do it. Do it. And, uh, and he's like, I don't know if I can. I don't know. I don't know. It, people will be annoyed, and, and, and we're Presbyterian, you know. Um, I, will, I, I, I do want to look at what Paul says just to drive this home. 1 Corinthians 9 at verse 7, he says, and you remember this, he's making the case, the same case here. He says, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? In other words, all of these vocations lead to material blessings. Why should not the pastorate lead to the same material blessings? I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Right? So the, even the ox gets to eat the product of, of his work. Or who ten, uh, sorry, or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? This is one of the most perplexing verses. He, he, he seems, seems to be caring about the oxen there. Or, it, or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will, not, so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ." Do you not know that those who perform sacred services, this is talking about the temple priesthood, right? The priests got to eat the bread, right? Eat the food of the temple. And those who attend regularly at the altar have their share from the altar. Not just the bread, they got the barbecue, right? They got all of it. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So there, all the details are sort of fleshed out and worked out with some good examples from the Old Testament. All right, then it moves from there, Galatians, back in Galatians, chapter 6 to this. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. So now he's using this analogy, this what you sow, you reap, right? And if you sow, it's still connected to what he says in verse 6. So if you sow for spiritual things, you'll reap spiritual fruit, right? So if you use, if you, if you plant for uh, spiritual things, you're going to have a crop of spiritual things. And then I think his mind starts exploding, with this principle. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Right? And, and so he's going beyond just the, the money thing now, and it's just like all of life. Whatever you sow, you will reap. 
And that is something that we must continually be examining ourselves about, right? Because the one who sows to the flesh, and how do you sow to the flesh? You say yes to all the sinful nature, right? You say yes to all the impulses and sinful nature. You say yes to lying. You say yes to your lusts. You say yes to your greed and your gluttony. You say yes to all of it. And what, do you, what in the end do you reap? If you're sowing and sowing and sowing all to that, you're going to reap corruption. And corruption here means what? Damnation. Because it's contrasted by sowing to the Spirit and reaping eternal life. Right? So this corruption is damnation. If you're a sower to the flesh, you will reap damnation. If you're a sower to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life. So, stop and examine yourself, right? Stop and examine yourself. This is the law of sowing and reaping. What we sow, we reap. Sow to the flesh, reap corruption. Sow to the Spirit, reap eternal life. And you can't dupe God in this. God is not mocked. He knows exactly when you're sowing to the flesh. He knows exactly when you're sowing to the Spirit. He can't, you know, He's not mocked. He's got you figured out. He knows you way better than you know yourself because He has infinite knowledge of even you, right? He knows when you're you're giving yourself a pass and you're like, well, I'm going to sow to the flesh for a little bit and then I'll get back to sowing to the Spirit. He knows all those justifications we make for our sins and, and how the devil will come along and say, look, how could you possibly be holy right now? How could you possibly be holy? There, you know, you, you need to give in to the sin and then we can do holy things later. Does the devil ever tempt you? Does your own mind justify things like that? You can give yourself to, to this wickedness for the next hour and then make yourself right with God. But we never see that reaping, that, that sowing, that sowing action as <clears throat> being a slippery slope, being progressive in our lives, right? We sow a little bit to the flesh. And just like a drug, that drug doesn't get you as high as the last time you hit that drug. And so you got to take more of it and more of it. And sowing to the flesh is similar to that, the satisfaction is you have to increasingly indulge your perverse imagination for it to be satisfying. And eventually, there is nothing at all to distinguish you from somebody who has no knowledge of the Lord. None. You're a worldling. And it's scary. We all feel that pull of our nature. We all feel that indwelling sin. And we, we, we play these games to justify, and, and this is just meant to sober us up. If you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap damnation. If you sow to the Spirit, you're going to reap eternal life. And it's just sitting here reminding of this fact. Every time you sow something, it has consequences. And sometimes they're bad, sometimes they're good, Right? How do we sow to the Spirit? Well, your sinful nature is tempting you, and you say, no, 
I'm going to pray through this temptation. I'm going to get through this temptation by prayer. You've just sowed to the Spirit, right? And what do you reap from that? Eternal life. You reap good things. You reap more power to resist sin, right? That's sowing to the Spirit. And so we need to be about that sowing to the Spirit because what a sad thing that your whole life you sow to the flesh and then you die and you expect that God is going to give you eternal life? That's crazy. It's delusional. That is what a lot of people think. They can sow and sow and sow and sow to the flesh and then hear God's well done, good and faithful servant enter into the rest of your master when they haven't served him a day of their life. And so we as the children of God sow to the Spirit and we reap eternal life. We give up all those immediate pleasures that are constantly waging war for our souls. We give those things up. We are those who wait for our good things, right? We just wait. We're waiting for paradise. We're waiting for that glorious vacation, that eternal Sabbath. We wait, and in the meantime, we sow toward that. And we progressively make our way there. God is not mocked. What a man sows, he will reap. If you sow wheat, you're not going to get a crop of Reese's peanut butter cups. I wrote my notes for some reason. <laughs> You'll get wheat, right? If you sow wheat. So if you sow to the flesh, you're not going to get good spiritual things. You're not, get, you're not even going to get Reese's peanut butter cups. I mean, some of you might not want those, but I do. I want the peanut butter cups. <clears throat> um, again, what does it mean to sow to the flesh? Do what your flesh naturally craves. Bear a grudge. Bear a grudge. Be unwilling to forgive. Um, satisfy your lusts. Give in to vengeance. Look at idolatrous images. Give in to self-pity. Tell a lie. Um, grumble and complain. Uh, and you're sowing. It's all sowing work, right? And you're just going to reap this crop of crud. Junk. Corruption. You will then tell a uh, you know, then your self-pity will move into uh, self-destruction and self-murder, right? And you'll wallow further and further into that, and, or you'll make grumbling a way of life, or bitterness will, you know, you just, your grumbling and complaining started with maybe some legitimate complaints, but you kept sowing to it, and then you just become a grumbler and a complainer. And then pretty soon you find that you're just a bitter person who has no joy in anything. And you, you're, you're reaping what you sowed. You're just reaping what you sowed. And so Christians don't sow to the flesh. They sow to the Spirit. They produce the fruit that we've already talked about. They consciously and every day ask themselves how they can glorify God. They seek to do what is right because they love God. They want to do that which leads to strength 
and not corruption and defilement. They want to read God's Word. They want to pray. They want to be in worship. They want to serve others. They want to encourage their friends. They want to point to Christ. They want to be a good witness. Right? They want to do all of those things. They want to be holy. They want to be holy. And the only problem is when you sow to the flesh, the semi-gratification is immediate. When you sow to the Spirit, God tells you to wait. You will one day reap a great reward, but He says, wait, wait. When you stand in His presence and you hear Him say, well done. I mean, if you've ever had goosebumps from anything that you hear or see, you'll have goosebumps then. Well done. You'll be weeping because you'll think you have not done well. But you'll be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And God will say, well done. And then you will reap all those treasures you stored up in heaven. You will reap all of that. And you will reap um, a soul and a body that will never, never, ever sin again. And you will have rest. So, remember that today. You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. So, let's sow to the Spirit. Let's sow to the building up of our brothers and sisters. Let's sow good things, okay? Father, help us in this work. Our flesh militates against the Spirit, and the Spirit wars against the flesh, and we pray that and know that the, the weapons of the Spirit are more powerful. And so I pray that as we sow, that sowing would be to the spirits and we would uh, enjoy the, the, the fruit of righteousness, the reaping of, of um, good things. Lord, we pray that you would help us in this battle. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.